I invite you to uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 13 to uh, 21. And as it is our custom here, I invite you to stand as well for the reading of, of God's Word. Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let us pray. Again, O oh Lord, we come to you and we confess our neediness and we confess, Lord, that we are weak but, and that we, that we need you. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, bring us illumination and blessing, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless the one who speaks, for he is weak, and bless those who hear. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I'd like to uh, let you in on a little bit of an inside joke that my wife Caroline and I have with one another. And the joke is that whenever I spend uh, a long time with a friend I haven't seen in a while, maybe we go get dinner together, go get coffee, whatever it may be, uh, soon she asks, so how are there... How are their kids? How's their wife doing? And the joke between us is that she knows that I didn't ask. And it blows her mind that men could hang out for hours after not seeing each other for months and not ask about each other's relationships or their kids or anything like that. And I think it perplexes my wife, and not to pick on her, probably many other wives as well, of what do men actually talk about when they get together. And so I will reveal this secret to you tonight, at least in part, of what men talk about. And it's mostly uh, just cars and guns. Uh, not, not, too, not too exciting. And uh, you know, us men, we're not known for talking about our feelings or our relationships or anything like that too often. But if you ask one of your buddies, hey, what kind of cars would you buy if you won the lottery? You know, suddenly he's very talkative. He's got a long list memorized of every car and every color of every year. He can tell you the make and model and all the grand designs he has to build himself a bigger garage to store all these cars, right? And yeah, I'm picking on men a little bit, but I think we all do this, right? We all daydream about a better life, whatever that may be. You know, it might be nicer houses or faster cars or better vacations or better education. There are a lot of things that uh, we daydream about. 
And there's actually a whole industry just to help us um, daydream, right? There's a limitless amount of websites and TV shows and YouTube channels devoted to this idea of just helping us daydream of what we would do uh, with a little bit more money. And one of these websites is called um, spendbillgatesmoney.com. And so if you go on this website at the very top, there's this ticker of Bill Gates Wealth, which is allegedly $100 billion, which is quite a bit of money. And you can go on there and spend all these you know, different items and you can see how it would affect his net worth. And in case you're curious, I thought I would tell you that if you were Bill Gates, you could buy the Mona Lisa, two Boeing 747s, five mansions, two Formula One cars, two yachts, 10 Ferraris, 30 Rolexes, 10,000 acres of land, and you'd still have just a measly $98.5 billion remaining. And so obviously this is an insane amount of money, $100 billion, right? That is completely unattainable for anybody in this room. I hope I didn't offend you. If I did, let me know. We can, we can work it over. But none of us are, are going to ever achieve a $100 billion net worth. But it is probable that at least some of us, not all of us, will receive an inheritance of some sort, certainly much more modest than that of, of Bill Gates. Maybe grandma and grandpa or mom and dad, once they pass, will, will leave you a good, a good chunk of money. And I want you to imagine with me if your grandpa isn't Bill Gates, but just your actual grandpa, and he leaves you a little bit of money. Nothing earth-shattering. You certainly can't buy the Mona Lisa, but he leaves you some money, but you find out somebody is keeping it from you. It's held up um, in, in legal red tape. How would you react? How would you feel in that scenario? And that's actually what happens in our text this, this evening, and it brings us to our first point, a relatable request. So let's read again verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to, invite, to divide the inheritance with me. And so here in verse 13, we see that a man is being cheated out of his inheritance. And what's interesting is he doesn't come to Jesus asking for advice but he actually tells Jesus what to do. He's almost commanding Jesus what to do. And it's actually not hard to imagine a scenario like this happening in the ancient world where a father dies without a will, and so all the money goes to the firstborn male who's supposed to disperse it to his siblings, but he's actually not dispersing it. It's likely what's happening here. And the younger brother, he just wants what is rightfully his. He's not trying to buy the Mona Lisa. He's not trying to buy a, a yacht. He just wants what is his, and he's convinced that justice is on his side. And he's also convinced that Jesus is going to act favorably on his behalf. And I, I don't think our reaction would be all that different if this very thing was happening to us. right? So imagine if your older brother was keeping from you enough money to pay off your mortgage and send your kids to college. How would you feel about that? Likely pretty upset. How 
How would we respond? Would it be any different than the way this man responds in, in this text? And if you went to Jesus and you told him that your older brother is keeping this money from you, how, how do you think he would respond? You would probably think that Jesus is going to intervene. But in verse 14, Jesus actually gives us a very unexpected response. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Very interesting, perplexing to me that Jesus says he's not the judge or arbitrator over this. And I want to ask Jesus, why not? I think we would all ask Jesus, aren't you, Jesus, actually the judge and arbitrator over everything? Aren't you, Jesus, our Lord, the king of the universe? Why will you not get involved in this case where I'm so clearly being defrauded? John Calvin, I think, gives three very helpful reasons as to why our Lord will not get involved in this case. So first, Calvin says that Jesus is guarding against the idea of an earthly kingdom. Second, Jesus is making a distinction between a political kingdom and the government of his church. And thirdly, Calvin says, the man was neglecting the kingdom of God and was only concerned with his earthly needs. I think what's important to help us remember about what's going on in, in this text is that Jesus did not come at that time to set up a political kingdom or to make his followers rich. He came as a teacher and a savior, and he came to live a perfect, sinless life that he may fulfill all righteousness, die on the cross, and be resurrected again on the third day. But the younger brother in this story, he looks past all of that, right? When he, see, when he sees Jesus, he does not say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has no care for the kingdom. He only cares about his earthly inheritance. And Jesus sees through this uh, request for justice as nothing more than a greedy desire, and he warns against covetousness. Again, verse 15, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's not actually justice that this young man wants. He just wants his money. And to illustrate this man's greed, Jesus tells a, a parable. And that brings us to our, our second point, a relatable uh, response in verses 16 to 19. It says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. One thing that um, I've noticed uh, between, I'll say, the older generation among us and the younger generation among us is that just generally speaking, to paint with broad brushes, the younger generation, Gen Z, millennials, some of them look at people who have attained wealth with suspicion, right? They think you must have stolen that. You must be underpaying your workers to get all of that money. We're Gen X, baby boomers, 
Not so much. They have, you know, the idea of if you work hard for it, you can earn it, and, and it's, it's yours. And I, I bring this up not to cause divisions among us, but I think Jesus is, is wanting to make clear in this parable that this man hasn't gained his wealth by any immoral means, or he hasn't gained it by any sense of, of corruption. He hasn't robbed the poor to buy mansions or yachts, or, or fly a private jet. It seems, according to Jesus' parable, that the man has come by the money honestly, right? The land of a rich man, verse 16, produced plentifully. This isn't an act of corruption. This isn't stealing from the poor to give to the rich. His, his crops grew, right? And ultimately, where does growth come from when you're a farmer? From your hard work, from the rain, from the sunshine, God gives the growth, right? Psalm 104.15, you cause the grass to grow. It is God who grew this man's field. Again, he, he didn't earn it by any immoral means. But what's interesting is his response to his new wealth. And I want to ask, is it any different than our response would be? Right? So in verse 18, what does he do? He builds bigger barns. Is that a bad thing? He, he doesn't squander his money. He doesn't go to Las Vegas. He doesn't act like the prodigal son. He, he just builds bigger barns. And I think that this is a relatable response. I think we would all do something very similar if we got a windfall of money, right? Likely, most of us, if, if we got a, a lump sum of money, We'd pay off our mortgages. We would get better insurance. We would fill up our retirement accounts. We would make sure our kids had enough money to go uh, to college. I think that we likely would act in the same way as the rich fool has. You know, 1 Timothy uh, 6, verse 10, often gets misquoted. It, I think it gets misquoted more than it gets quoted uh, correctly, right? The misquote is that money is the root of all evil. But that's not actually what the scripture says, right? It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think this man's sin is not in possessions, but in how tightly he clings to him. We see his sin in verse 19, where he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Money has given him all the rest and relaxation that he'll ever need in this life. Calvin says of this man that he swells up with pride by relying on his abundance. He addresses himself in such a manner as to imply that he has all that he needs necessary for gratifying all his senses, all his desires, all of his wants. For this man, after receiving his money all worries are now set aside, and he can now be a hedonist. His heart is now as full as his bank account is. I think before we judge this man too harshly, or anyone in Hollywood or Silicon Valley or, or Wall Street, we should ask ourselves if we're any different than the rich fool. It was one good harvest, if you notice in the text, one good harvest that brought him uh, this, this money. He didn't win the lottery. Again, he didn't 
steal anything. It was one good harvest. And how many of us are hoping in one more good harvest? If I could just pay off A, B, or C, if I could just buy X, Y, and Z, then I would be able to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If I could only quit this job, if I could only pay off my student loans, then I would finally be able to be happy. I think that we often forget what the rich man forgot, that life does not consist in the abundance of riches. Uh, many, many people have said that Jesus talks about money more than any other topic in the Gospels. I don't know if that's true. Um, I, I haven't counted. It, it may be true. Um, but what's important to note is not necessarily how much Jesus talks about something, but, but that he does call us to think about money very differently than, than the rest of the world. Because to be a disciple in, in the kingdom of God is not to just live the American dream with the name of Jesus attached on the end, but we ought to entirely redirect how we use and think about our material possessions. We're not called to gain more and more and more, but as our Lord says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so our Lord calls us to lives of self-denial and not to lives of self-fulfillment. And, and this warning, this passage here is not just for the rich, but for the poor as well. If you remember in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection and uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Is that not exactly what the rich fool says here in the parable? Let me eat and, and drink. The rich fool is, is living as if the dead are not raised. He lives the same exact way as the pagans do. And this is why God calls him a fool. And that brings us to our third point, a reason to repent. And let's read verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Toward God. If you are uh, a fan of Old West history or shooting sports like I am, you may have heard this line before that says, uh, God created all men, but Sam Colt made them equal. Uh, which is a line that, you know, I kind of love. It's just filled with macho American bravado, and I just eat it up. But it's horrible theology, right? Um, Sam Cole, the inventor of the revolver as we know it, is not the person who made all men equal. God did. But Sam Colt also is not the great equalizer. Death is, is the great equalizer. Right? And so whether we are rich or poor, whether we're very wise or very simple, very strong or very frail, we will all die the same. And though 
we may be tempted by the wealth of this world when the end comes, all the wealth that Bill Gates has, all the wealth that Jeff Bezos has, it's going to mean absolutely nothing. And so the problem of the rich man in this parable is that he has set all of his hope in his riches, but in the end, he will be poor. Psalm 49, verses 17 to 20, really illuminate this passage for us. It says, For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And so the rich man here in our parable has considered his life as the abundance of his riches. But in the end, his soul will go to a place where he will never, ever see light again. Again, the sin of of the rich man in, in verse 21 is that he was not rich toward God. His, his sin was not in having possessions in and of himself, but making his life only about his possessions. By making himself rich, he was not rich toward God. And you may be asking, what does this phrase mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? I imagine that there may have been some uh, sermons preached on this text where now you get to the church's building campaign and how much you need to tithe and how much you need to give. And certainly, right, we ought to tithe. We ought to give our resources to God. But I, I don't think that's primarily what Jesus is getting at here. The, the, the sin of the rich man is thinking only of himself and not of God. Our Lord says on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, uh, 19 and following, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this man only ever laid up treasures for himself on earth and never ever thought about heaven Calvin says that they are rich to God who do not trust in earthly things, but depend solely on his providence, right? Those who pray every day, Lord, give me my daily bread. The man in this parable, he thinks nothing of stewardship or generosity or the life to come. He thinks only of himself and only of his comforts. He does not live as a man who will one day face death, and judgment. He is not living for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, for uh, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But what is the rich fool done? Soul, you have all you need. Eat, drink, and, and be merry. I think that this passage ought to serve us as a warning against covetousness and the danger that, that comes with, with riches. When, when Jesus says that it's easier uh, for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to eat, uh, enter the kingdom of God, do you remember what his disciples say? 
They say, who then can be saved? Right? But, but what do we say so often? We respond, oh, but Lord, just give me a chance. And, and I, would, I would do things differently. I would handle that money so much better if you gave me that chance. Right? We respond like Teve does in Fiddler on, on the Roof. He says, if I were a rich man, I'd have the time I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the Eastern Wall, and I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours a day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all, right? We, just like T, we deceive ourselves in thinking that we would handle it so much better, so much differently than the rich fool. We often read the warnings of, of wealth in Scripture, and we sing that popular country song that says, I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil and you can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool. You know, over and over again, Scripture warns us against the dangers of of wealth and that wealth can be a trap. And I think it's important for us to remember, I forget this a lot, I may be the only one, um, When scripture warns us against the dangers of wealth, it's not just the wealth of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, but I think also it's comfortable middle-class wealth as well. That can also be a danger to us. And so we ought to hear these words and, and heed them faithfully. We ought to take this warning seriously and say, well, I don't, we shouldn't say, I don't have $100 billion. This doesn't apply to me. Wealth in, in any arena can be a trap. But as we conclude here, I, I want to, um, to, to, to remind us that, um, or assure you that this is not a call to, to poverty. God calls us to rest in him and not in our wealth or even in our poverty or even in our good works. God calls us to be rich to him, to not trust in our own money, our own wealth, our own bank accounts, but in his kind providence. God calls us to consider how impoverished we are on our own, but how rich we are in him. Revelation 3.17, our Lord says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Our Lord calls us to consider the present sufferings or even the present glories of this world as fleeting and vain to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I would ask you, if you are here tonight and and you don't know him, that you would come to know him, that you would repent of your sins and, and you would believe in him. For one day soon, your soul will be required of you, and that day may be much sooner than you think. Let us pray. Gracious God and loving Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this time together, for the gift of of your word. 
Lord, thank you for the way that uh, your word um, convicts us and calls us to holiness. We pray, O oh God, that um, you, you would work in us and that you would, um, uh, you would give us hearts that would look more and more to our Heavenly Father and less and less to the things of this world. We pray, O oh God, that you would put to death in us the old man and make alive in us the new. Help us, O oh Lord, for our minds to be filled not so much with new toys and new houses, but with the surpassing worth of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.